Israel Falau, I think that's how you pronounce it. He's an Australian rugby player and he tweeted this. Warning, drunks, homosexuals, adulterers, liars, fornicators, thieves, atheists, idolaters, hell awaits you, repent, only Jesus saves. Did that a few weeks ago, he's been sacked from the Australian rugby team, uh, deselected. In September 2014, uh, a 14-year-old girl from Manchester committed suicide. Her family, she and her family, were members of an Anglican church, an evangelical church in Manchester. They discovered after she died that she was gay, and she apparently felt conflict between what the Bible says and the feelings she had. The conflict was too much. She took her own life. In June last year, this lady, Vicky Beeching, published her autobiography, Undivided, a memoir of finding my voice. Vicky Beeching is a songwriter, uh, she wrote Christian songs, led music at conferences, and her book is dedicated to the girl who took her own life. She describes uh, the vast tension between being gay and being Christian. She came out in 2014, it was a big news story, and she stopped going to an evangelical church. She says she would love to, I quote, to be able to walk back in the doors and actually feel safe and not feel like an awkward relative at a party that no one quite knows what to say to. Sex is a minefield. Sexuality is a minefield. In our culture, if you say something and it's perceived wrong, you could be sacked or there'll be a Twitter storm or Facebook storm. In our churches, if you say something wrong, the church can be outraged at you. People can leave. Vicky Beeching has left her church. Or worse, worse happens. Excuse me. Anecdotally, young people are abandoning our churches because they're not gay-friendly. I don't know about your church. We've not got many young people to spare. But people call us bigoted, homophobic, prejudiced. More recently, we're called transphobic. That's a whole extra minefield to navigate. How do we get this right? Well, to advise the church, the archbishops have set up a group. And in February, uh, it's launched its uh, pastoral principles for living well together and welcoming LGBTI plus people. Six principles, they say, I quote, which invite church communities to consider and discuss their life together as a diverse community. The Bishop of Newcastle, uh, Christine Hardman, says, as communities of Christians, we are held together in the love of Christ. Our many differences are gifts that can build us up in trust and mutual, mutual affection. LGBTI plus people in our churches have not always experienced this unconditional love of Christ. And we need to admit and address this reality. So here's the, the six headings. It's very small writing. Let me read the top. The quality of our relationships is diminished by six pervading evils. How are these at work in your own church community and how might your church address them? Acknowledge prejudice, speak into silence, address ignorance, cast out fear, admit hypocrisy, pay attention to power. And at the bottom it says, fact, at least some of these evils will be, not might be, but will be at work in your church, even if not with respect to LGBTI plus people. Who is missing? Who is present? Who is silent? Who is silent? 
Now, I've, I've read these, and I actually think there is some, uh, some of the questions they raise are really, really good and useful. Let me just go through a few of them. The first one, acknowledge prejudice. It says at the bottom, principle number one, uh, sorry, acknowledge pre prejudice is the first principle, and here's a statement. Find out how the things we do and the language we use affect LGBTI plus people in ways that are harmful we don't uh, intend. That is a good question. I remember once talking to, uh, to a group of Christians and mentioned that I uh, worked alongside TFT, and one person said, ooh, don't stand too close to anyone. I've heard other Christians say stuff like, it's so gay in deriding something. Now that's prejudice, isn't it? That is harmful, isn't it? Even if it's the attitude in a private joke, I can't imagine someone who struggles with their sexuality then choosing to open up to that person or to that church. They're not going to want to find community there, are they, where they're ridiculed in that way. They're going to find a more welcoming, open community. It may be the church down the road. It may be the gay bar further down the road. So acknowledge prejudice. Principle number two, speak into silence. Here's the statement. Can it be right for our church communities to promote a conspiracy of silence, whether consciously or subconsciously, about matters relating to sexuality and gender? That is a good question, isn't it? How many churches are silent on this issue? The issues are difficult, complex, explosive, can be deadly even. And we keep quiet and hope it goes away. Or we keep quiet until we retire and hope that the next person, the younger person, they can deal with it then. That can't be right, can it? Speak into silence. Principle three, address ignorance. It says, in our preaching, Bible study groups, public prayer and praying in informal contexts, how do we ensure they flow from having an established authentic relationships and exercising deep listening? That's good, isn't it? If we don't know our congregation well, if we don't listen to them well, if we don't love them well, if we're not really listening what's going on in their lives, how can we apply our teaching in ways that really connect, in ways that challenge? Principle four, cast out fear. How can we, it says, acknowledge one another to wrestle prayerfully with avoiding a cheap grace that denies the costliness of Christ's call to his disciples to take up their cross and follow him? Now, one of the members of this group is a chap called Ed Shaw, who's a great guy, who I'm sure he's one of us. Uh, I recognize him, his handwriting in, in that. But what about this one? Acknowledge prejudice again. Because of our understanding that everyone is made in the image of God, we will receive our differences as gifts, valuing all people, and seek to see Christ in all our neighbors. Now, there's some truth in that. Yes, it's true. We're all made in the image of God. Male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave, and free, straight, gay, trans, whatever. We are all made in the image of God. And it's true. Gifts can be, uh, differences can be gifts. Different gifts make up a church family, the body of Christ. We enjoy the gifts people bring. We, we celebrate them. A healthy church will have different gifts, different backgrounds, different experiences, different ages. Barriers are broken down and a whole united community is formed. But is every difference a gift to celebrate? Do we celebrate couples living together? 
Is that a gift to the church? Do we celebrate the couple in an adulterous affair? Is that a gift to the church? Do we celebrate the man in Corinth sleeping with his father's wife? Is that a gift to the church? Paul would say, no, not. I celebrate when sinners come to church. I welcome them enthusiastically. I pray that they'll repent, that they'll believe, that they'll stick, that they'll be part of our church. But I can't celebrate what the Bible says is sinful. And look again at what it's saying, if you can read it. It isn't asking the question, will we receive differences as a gift? It's a statement, it's a command to the Church of England, we will receive differences as a gift. The implication is that if we won't receive all differences as a gift, then we are prejudiced. Now, I object to that. I can disagree with someone, that doesn't mean I'm prejudiced against them. I can think same-sex relationships are sinful. That doesn't make me homophobic or hateful, does it? And a final principle, the last one, pay attention to power, says this. Inequalities of power have led to abuses in the past and will continue to do so unless all who exercise pastoral care reflect continuously on the power that they hold. Power must always be Acknowledge That is a fair point. If we lead in church, we have power. And sex abuse scandals over the years have trashed reputations of, of all churches, of all denominations. And as evangelicals, as conservative evangelicals, we're not immune to that. John Smythe led the Ewan camps. He had power over those boys, and he abused them in the most gross, violent way. But I think that these priorities are written not just to challenge power, but actually they challenge authority. In fact, I think they effectively remove authority, remove the authority to speak truth, the authority to teach the Bible, the authority to say something is right and wrong. The way I read them, everyone is reduced just to listening. We can speak, but it's only our opinion, and everyone has an equal opinion. No one can speak with authority no one can speak authoritatively to claim to know the truth. If you claim to know the truth, the absolute truth, then you don't value the other people, these, these principles are saying, as equal partners. And so I think the implication is that any claim to, be, to know the truth is, is wrong. Now, perhaps I'm being unfair. Have a read of them yourself. See what you think. But I want to suggest an alternative model, a biblical model, which is... Speaking the truth in love. From Ephesians 4. If you've got it open, I'm going to just go through some of the verses. Paul is, is teaching in Ephesians 4 how, how a church, the church is made up of people from all different backgrounds with all barriers broken down. People from every background. The big divide is the Jew and the Gentile who are formerly at war against each other are at peace in one church family. And what unites a church is not a diversity of opinions. We're united with one opinion, with one revealed faith, a faith that is taught. So in verse 11, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the teachers, uh, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up to become what Paul says we already are, we, we're united as a body, so we're built up to become that united body. Until verse 13, we all reach unity in the faith 
and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So pastors and teachers and other leaders are not to be passive, not to just be listening and exploring, not just to be celebrating difference. We're there to work, to teach, to press on towards unity. So we teach encouraging people to be more united in their faith, to understand the faith better, to draw closer together with one faith and one baptism and one Lord. We're to encourage the people with their diverse gifts to use them all together with a common good, attaining, uh, end of verse 13, to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, becoming more and more united, more and more like Jesus. Then, verse 14, we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. We won't be blown here and there by different opinions, by diverse opinions, by different theories, by false teachers. Instead, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Speaking the truth, God's revealed truth, God's eternal truth, God's truth for his church. Speaking the truth in love. You have to hold both together, don't you? You have to speak the truth, but you have to do so in love. Some people speak God's truth with passion, but in an unloving way. They leave casualties in their wake. Others want to be so loving that they dare not speak truth. They never challenge. They never chastise. But churches grow and Christians grow in our unity, in our love for Jesus. To become more like Jesus, we grow when the truth is spoken and spoken lovingly. So here's, I think, a biblical model in approaching sex and sexuality in the church. Speak the truth. The first thing I want to say is, Have confidence in the gospel. We have a message, the gospel, which is the truth. Now, that's not a a power play. That's not to abuse you by saying that. We just have a message, which is good news. Good news to everybody, to straight people, to gay people, to trans people. Jesus is good news. We can be tempted to believe the lie, I think, that the gospel oppresses people, squashes people, makes them less than they could be. But no, the gospel liberates. There is complete forgiveness for the past. There's complete acceptance for the present. There's complete assurance for the future. If we accept the gospel, we begin to live life as it's meant to be lived and lived in all its fullness, a life with Jesus. And gay people I know through Tree Freedom Trust, gay people I know are are, are bowled over by Jesus. They love him. They love his death. They love his resurrection. They love his grace. They're, They're therefore willing to submit to him, to make him Lord, to give up any gay identity for him. He's worth living for. He's worth sacrificing for, sacrificing relationships for. It's far from easy for people to make that decision, but they would say Jesus is worth it. Many say they've been rescued from a gay lifestyle. They're rescued from guilt and shame. They're rescued from slavery to trying to keep young and beautiful, trying to have the perfect body. They're rescued to be instead the man or woman that God has created them to be. So, first step, 
Have confidence in the gospel. Speak the truth. It's good news. How do we share the good news? I've been involved in discussions in our diocese over these issues, on the issues of sexual morality. And I tend to try and say, we, as a church, they're pushing that the, we must be welcoming, welcoming, welcoming. And I say, oh, we're welcoming. We're absolutely welcome. We will welcome anyone into our church, but we welcome with the message, repent and believe and follow Jesus. And it's just struck me recently, I think what they think is that I'll welcome someone and then straight away be on to them that they've got to repent and believe. Like, welcome, you're, you're very welcome. Are you gay? You look a bit gay. You've got to repent and believe. The inner Ian Paisley comes repent, comes out. We're, we're wiser than that, aren't we? Speaking the truth in love. Isn't there a, a subtlety and a wisdom, not just to jump down someone's throat? We, we get to know them. We listen to them. We understand them. We don't... You share the gospel as a, a stick to hit them with. We share the gospel like a balm to, to the hurt and the shame. It seems to me when we're sharing the gospel, it's best not to focus on the sin, isn't it? Telling people what they're doing wrong because all they will hear is the condemnation. Isn't it better to point to Jesus and focus on Jesus and look at Jesus? Isn't Jesus amazing? Look at who he is and what he's done. We want them to meet Jesus, to fall in love with him, to be in awe of him, to enjoy his grace. And then, then they'll, by meeting him, they'll be convicted of sin, won't they? Whether it's this sin or another sin or a whole collection of sins, they'll be convicted as they meet Jesus. That's why, if I'm honest, I'm a, a bit uncomfortable with the, the tweet the rugby player put out because it really, the focus of that tweet is sin. It doesn't say much about Jesus. It just focuses really on a list of sins. Though interestingly, when I went to search for this tweet, it took a long time to find the whole picture. Most of the people quoting it cut off the bottom. Where he says about Jesus, they cut that bit out to make it sound worse, to miss out the generous part. They miss out the bit where he's just basically quoting the Bible. But who cares? Who cares about the truth of what the man really said? They're just out to drag him down. I don't think it's the best, but I think he's treated badly. So, have confidence in the gospel. Secondly, make sure it is the gospel, because it's very easy to communicate a different message. I think it's very easy to become a Pharisee. And I'm just going to put a health warning out now. This is the, one of the scary bits of the talk. You might want to put a seatbelt on. This is the challenging bit. Because I think we can care more about behavior than salvation. Let me illustrate what I mean by asking you, do you rent out your church hall? Do you let out your church hall? You know, for parties and for, you know, celebrations, that kind of thing. Let me ask you, would you let it out to a gay couple? They phoned you up and they said they were gay and they want an event, a birthday party. Not, I'm not talking about a wedding, I'm not talking about a blessing, just a birthday party, an event. Would you hire it out to them? I guess for many of us, the instinct is to say no. No, I wouldn't. Because it would sort of imply I was accepting them or, or blessing their relationship in some way. But the question is, it was asked in the first session, the question is, are you being consistent? If you turn down someone for the way they behave, are you consistent? If you turn them away because of the way they live, are you consistent? So will you also turn down a party where 
one of the couples, it's, it's, it's a second marriage, they've divorced and remarried. Will you turn away a party if you think they're going to eat too much? Will you turn away a party if they may gossip over the meal? Probably not. But those are sins, aren't they? Serious sins listed among homosexual activity as sins to uh, condemn in the, in the New Testament. They're condemned alongside gay sex in the New Testament. So why, why refuse the gay couple but not the other events? That's prejudice, isn't it? That's discrimination, isn't it? The law would be right, wouldn't it, to say we're acting in a discriminatory way, wouldn't it? Isn't the real problem, we don't want them, we don't want the gay couple, because somehow we've assumed that their sin, their sin is worse than other sins, they're worse sinners. Isn't that what's going on in our minds? And in which case, isn't that how the Pharisees acted? They wanted to eat with people, but they only wanted to eat with people like them, with nice people. The message is that only people who behave like me are welcome here. Only people who are, who are nice like me and who, who, with my respectable sins, they're, they're welcome here. With my sins. The real sinners, the gay couple, they can, they can stay away from this church. And the gay couple, how do they respond to our rejection? They reject us, don't they? We've just confirmed their expectations and they harden themselves just a bit more or a lot more against the church, against us, against Christians, against the gospel, against Jesus. And have they taken offense at Jesus? Have they been offended by the gospel? No. They haven't heard about Jesus. They've just rejected us as we've shut the door in their face. They've rejected us and rejected Jesus because of our judgmentalism. Now, sure, what's the alternative? If we host the party, if we welcome them in, it might confuse people. What will people think? What will our own congregation members think? But when Jesus ate with sinners and prostitutes, was he bothered by what people thought? Did he worry what people thought? Did he worry people might think he was, by implication, blessing them in some way? them and their moral, immoral lives? No, he said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So what, what if? What if you did hire out your church hall to the gay couple? People would be surprised, yes. Because they know we hate the gays. They know that. But we might then have an opportunity, mightn't we, to talk to them? Talk about why we're not rejecting them? how we love all people, how God is passionate for all people, how we're not actually interested in behavior and how people live. We're interested in the Savior, in Jesus, who, who comes to say, come and follow me. Because there's a God who loves us so much that he died for us. And suddenly, we're talking about the gospel, aren't we? We're not talking about their sin. We're talking about Jesus, aren't we? We're sharing the gospel. Now, they may still reject Jesus. I mean, gosh, it's only hiring a hall. It's not... It's not uh, Christianity explored, but they, they may still reject Jesus. But at least they've heard about Jesus and not our judgment. It may be a, a first step, just a, one more step in them investigating Christianity because they've received grace and welcome, rather door shut in their face. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying, I'm absolutely not saying we should do gay marriage, gay blessings, same-sex weddings in any way. No, there should be no prayers, no blessing, no, no, nothing to even hint that God 
it's going to bless sin. We must always say no to that. Just like we have to say no sometimes to some heterosexual couples who want to get married. We have to say no sometimes, and it's hard. But actually, even saying no can be, I think, a gospel opportunity. If I ever have to have a couple phone up and uh, ask a couple of questions, they want to get married. Oh, do you live in the parish? Yes, we live in the parish. Have either of you been married before? Well, actually, yes, one of us has. I said, oh, let me just pop around and have a chat. I could just say, I'm sorry, we don't marry divorced people and put the phone down. They get the door of judgment slammed in their face. But I go around and I sit down with the same, let, let me tell you about me and what I believe, why I'm a Christian. I explain who Jesus is and why he matters to me, how he died for me, how that's significant, how forgiven, forgiven I am, why that's so important, him rising, that he's my God, I follow him and obey him. So I, just a quick outline of the gospel, why Jesus matters to me. And I want to hear their story, but actually before even I hear the story, I just pass the Bible to them, open at Matthew 19, and I say, look, I have to follow Jesus on this. He's my Lord. He's my God. I want to obey him. Look, here's Matthew 19. Here's what Jesus says about marriage, divorce, and remote. And I explain the passage, and I say, okay, I don't know your situation. I'm not here to judge you. You tell me what I should do. I got this off a wise older minister a few years ago. I just think it's brilliant because it's not confronting them and saying, no. It's asking them to meet Jesus, hear about his grace, and then say, what do you think I should do in this situation? And it's not happened in Kids Grove yet, but if a gay couple phoned me up and said, we'd like to have a wedding, I wouldn't just say, we don't do weddings of gay people and slam the door. I'd go around and see them. And I'd do the same thing. I'd explain about who Jesus is and why I obey him and love him. And then open up, I don't know, 1 Corinthians 6 or another passage and just try to explain it to them and say, what do you think I should do? So they're hearing Jesus. I'm sure they'll still hear rejection. I'm sure it will be painful and difficult. But at least they've heard something of Jesus and not just judgment. The phone slammed down, the door shut in their face. I'm not blessing their relationship. I'm trying to show hospitality where I can, to eat with sinners where I can and explain what I can. Because closing the door in judgment, that doesn't sound like the gospel to me. So, Speak the truth. Uh, have confidence in the gospel. Make sure it is the gospel you're sharing. And have right expectations from the gospel. For the gospel liberates, the gospel transforms lives. Each of us can give testimony to that, can't we? So what, what is it we expect from the gospel? What, what changes do we expect to see? In, for someone, say someone... Say that one of that, two of that, that gay couple became Christians in God's mercy. What would we expect to see? What would we want to see? Well, we want to see a change, wouldn't we? We'd want to see repentance from sexual immorality. We'd want them to turn away from sin, to flee from sin, to, to seek to lead a pure, godly life. Colossians says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. But there's been a, a bit of a big debate over the last few months. Um, Keith mentioned Living Out, uh, a brilliant website of resources, videos, for, again, written by people who, who live with same-sex attraction. It's a, a superb resource, but they've taken an absolute pasting over the last few weeks uh, around these issues. The basic question being, if someone uh, is gay and becomes a Christian, how should they think about their sexuality after that? 
Should it be something they're just at peace with and just say, this is who I am? Or is their sexuality itself something they should be challenged to repent of and seek to change? Well, speaking now for truth, freedom, trust, we, we do believe in transformation. When someone becomes a Christian, we expect change. Change is inevitable, isn't it? When anyone becomes a disciple of Jesus, we accept, expect to see them change their heart and their mind, and therefore, there'll be a change of behavior. God can change more. I do know people whose sexuality has changed, though we don't seek that and, and push that, because it does seem to be a minority. We're not uh, one of those, oh, I can't remember the term, that it's, it's becoming illegal of, of, of trying to counsel for change. That's not what we're about. We're looking instead at the change of heart and mind that will change behavior. But what are they meant to think about their sexual orientation itself? Is that sinful? Is it sinful to be homosexual in inclination? The Bible doesn't answer that question. It doesn't talk in terms of sexual orientation. It only talks in terms of sexual behavior. But I think we can work it out. It seems to me sexuality can lead to temptation which can lead you into sin. Now, we know sin is wrong, obviously, but temptation, the second step, sexuality leads to temptation, leads to sin. Is, is temptation a sin? Well, Jesus was tempted in every way, but did not sin. So, presumably, Jesus, if he was tempted in every way, must have been tempted sexually, but he did not sin. So, we say, don't we, temptation is not sinful. So, if sexuality leads to temptation, and temptation is not sinful, then how can sexuality be sinful in itself. The sin is sinful, but temptation and the sexuality that leads to temptation cannot be sinful in itself. And I think that's useful, isn't it? That's pastorally useful. We can reassure someone who is same-sex attracted that in itself, that attraction is not bad. It's not sinful. Yes, a sexual relationship with someone of the same sex is sinful. Lust is sinful. Sex in your mind is sinful. But the orientation in itself is not sinful. That's a relief. If someone is living with same-sex attraction, that's a relief to know that they're not in itself sinful. If the attraction is sin, they'd have something to repent about. Something that, can you just imagine, you know when temptations fly into your mind, thoughts, temptations, even sexual temptations come into your mind. You can't control the thoughts that come into your mind. You, can, you are responsible for what you do with those temptations. But imagine the pressure you would feel if even the thoughts coming into your mind that you're not responsible for, even if that was sin, the pressure, the burden that would be. So to know that orientation is not sinful is a huge relief. Can I suggest, though, sometimes our language doesn't teach that fact. So often I hear people talking about homosexuality being sinful. But if we say homosexuality is sinful, we're saying the inclination is sinful. And that's the burden. They're, they're the burden is put on people. They feel guilty for something they can't change. Oh, I don't think people will survive that burden. We're more likely to lose them. So rather than talking about homosexuality being sinful, we're better to talk about homosexual activity being sinful, gay sex is sexual immorality. It's the activity. It's the sin itself. It's giving into the temptation that is the sin. It's the, the choice that people make is the sin. So can we stop talking about homosexuality being sinful, the inclination being sinful? It's not the sexual orientation. It's the activity. So, 
What should life look like for someone who's same-sex attracted and a Christian? If their sexuality is not changed, if they, we just accept it's not sinful, but the temptations are still strong, often, matter of fact, for any Christian, you or me, who faces sexual temptation, what, do we, what is it to look like, Christian life to look like? For me, one of the most helpful illustrations I ever heard was from <clears throat> John Chapman Chapo, the Australian evangelist, who described Christianity like a road that you're either going that way, away from God, or you're going towards God. And you can be no God and, and, or just drifting in life away from God. And repent, turn back, say yes to God. It so helps me in my Christian life just to understand what Christianity is, basically. That picture, though, helps too pastorally, I find, in helping people when they struggle in certain ways. So, for example, if you meet someone who's really struggling with forgiveness, that something horrendous has happened, they're really struggling with forgiveness, I tend to use that picture to explain what's going on here. You could be a person who's saying, no, God, I will not forgive that person. Or you could be a person saying, yes, Lord, you say forgive. Would you please help me? I cannot do this. Help me forgive. Now, it looks the same, doesn't it? They're not forgiving, but it's very different. One is, I will not forgive, no. And one is, yes, I know I must. Will you help me, God? And that helps me to understand how to respond to this issue of same-sex attraction. To someone who still has same-sex attraction, how to live in obedience and purity. When, for them, when someone walks by and they're attractive or appears in the screen or they find them on their screen in front of them or, or they flirt with them, what's, what's their response? They could say, I can't help this. This is how I'm made. This is, this is me. And although I've said, no, I, I'm going to repent and believe, but at this moment, no. No, God, just leave me be. The challenge is that actually for them and for all of us, that even in the moment of temptation, we're not saying, no, God, this is me. This is mine. It's Oh, Lord, I cannot do this. Please help me. We, we can't choose the passions of our hearts. We can't stop the temptations coming. But we can choose for God to be the greatest passion of our heart. Psalm 86 says, Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart. Not a heart that's that way and that way, but an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord, my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever, for great is your love towards me. You have delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. So a good question for all of us in issues of sexuality and all temptations, is am I wanting God to incline my heart towards him? When my passions are burning in me, is my greatest passion, my overwhelming desire for God. So we have to have right expectations from the gospel. Not that everything will change, not that someone's sexuality will change, but that their heart will change, that their heart will warm to God and they'll be crying out and wanting, yes, desperately wanting to obey God, whatever temptations they face. So, we're called to speak the truth, have confidence in the gospel, make sure it is the gospel, and have right expectations from the gospel. Speak the truth, finally and more briefly, in love. Speak in a loving way. And it seems to me the very best way to speak this truth is speak it when you build a loving 
community. The biggest single thing we can do to support people who are same-sex attracted is to build a church that is more than just a hearty welcome, more than a just great to see you, more than superficial, superficial chats over coffee, that we create a community where people experience love, that they know they're accepted, that they know they're loved, that, that they share lives, that there are quality relationships, that church is a place where they feel loved and secure so that they can share their struggles, their doubts, their temptations, their depression, that they can get people to pray with the real them and we can get people to pray with the real us. Our attempt in Kids Grove to change church like this is just to change our house groups. We started calling them growth groups instead, just to try and explain that we're trying to grow as Christians. Rather than it just being a Bible study, our encouragement is that people from time to time or regularly eat together, just so they sit and have a meal and get to know each other, that they have a day out together, and that they're committed to the group. Our groups so often, you get one person come once a month and another a different month, and it's almost a different group week by week. Our aim is, our challenge is, that our growth groups become our best friend. That on Wednesday night, that is our best friend. So if our, if our best mate phones up and says, do you want to go to the theater or the cinema on Wednesday? I can't, I'm going out with my best friend. I'm going to be with my best friend, my growth group on that night. So that we can build quality relationships. Now, I can't say it's a massive change in Kids Grove. There's three of our church members here. You can ask them. But it's our aim. That's something we're trying to do. One of the, the young men I know from TFT goes to a church in the north of England where they have something called Thursday Tea, where it's open house at the vicarage, where anyone can come for tea and stay for a chat, have a meal, play board games, watch TV, and they stay late, late to the night. And he loves it because there he's built strong friendships. He says that they're not just meeting for Bible study. To just meet for Bible study and go home, it's too intense. It's too, too shallow, actually. That they're sharing lives. They're getting to know one another with genuine love and encouragement. So he says this, I like to be not the only person with problems, thinking I'm the worst sinner in church. Instead, we're sharing lives. We're all messed up, sinful, broken people. We're broken together. Singleness is hard. If I don't make plans, if I'm not proactive, I might not see anyone. It's hard just to phone someone up and invite yourself around. A regular thing like this helps ensure I see people. I find that very challenging. It challenges me to think about doing Thursday tea. To create a community of love where people can share and be honest and open. Now, I know some churches have taken this to an extra level or put on groups in an extra, extra level. I know some churches represented here have started their own groups for people who are same-sex attracted to meet, to really share this struggle together. And I guess if you're a church of four, five, six, seven hundred or whatever, you're going to have enough people in that church to make that viable. But for smaller churches, this is where TFT, we want to serve you by running groups, Barnabas groups, encouragement groups for people that are all over the country, for ones and twos from churches to come together and receive fellowship and openness and encouragement. And can I encourage you, books have been mentioned, I'd encourage you to read this book, The Plausibility Problem by Ed Shaw. Ed Shaw is a man who lives with same-sex attraction and he's teaching about the challenge of loneliness and the need for love and how, how church can take steps to become a much more community of love that goes beyond the superficial. It's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant book. I'm not on commission. It's brilliant. 
to create, he wants us to create a community so loving that relationships are so deep that people like him don't need to go out and look for sex and intimacy outside the church. They can find intimacy through true relationship within the church. Is that what your church is like? If not, you need to read that book. And actually, really what we're doing is not just producing a church for people who are same-sex attracted. It's for everyone, for anyone, for all people, that we all can share lives and whatever our struggles, we can know love and support. Build a loving community and finally and briefly, set a loving example. You want to build a community where people can talk about real issues, about personalities. And finally, I want to say, I think we need to set the example. As leaders, if you're a leader in church, we need to set, set the example, to be open about our own brokenness, our own sinfulness. So the church doesn't just see me stood up here as someone who, who is good, someone who sees, but they see and, and know someone who also needs Jesus and needs the love and the support of their church, who's open about their struggles and sins and it isn't judged and therefore won't judge others. Now, I'm not saying, look, if you're going to do a, I talk to the Mother's Union, you need to have a PowerPoint of here's my sexual desires and you put that on the screen. I'm not saying that. It doesn't have to be that specific. It can be generalized. You could say something like, look, I'm sexual too. I'm broken sexually. I've sinned sexually. Or I know what is to be tempted. I did a talk once in Kids Grove where I said that I've got accountability software on my computer so that Jane knows which websites have visited me. It helps me be pure. I've not got any details of that. I just know that that's happened. Afterwards, someone said to me, oh, you were so brave. That was so costly. I thought, I wondered afterwards, have I said more than I meant to? I don't know. <laughs> you don't have to share your browsing history. Just be honest. I've got these safeguards. So you're showing that you struggle, but you're showing a godly example of how to fight. Surprise people. Amaze people that you struggle too. And then be a godly example in the struggle. So you're not just speaking the truth, but you're speaking the truth in love, and you seem to be living it too. Amen.